Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The cost to see a financial advisor and get financial advice has skyrocketed over recent years. There's been a lot of activity and chatter and action in government circles, in association circles, in advice circles, but also consumer circles. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with the CEO of the Financial Advice Association of Australia, Sarah Abood, and we're talking about the state of play with financial advice in Australia right now. The quality of advice review uh, was issued last year that the government commissioned to basically put a whole heap of stuff back on the table to see if we can get the cost of advice lower. Sarah and I talk about legislation. We talk about the good advice duty. We talk about getting advice from your super fund. We cover a fair bit of ground. It is a little bit technical, so I, I do get that, but it's important that we really do discuss these things Let's get into it. My name's Glenn James. This is Sarah Abood, CEO of the Financial Advice Association of Australia. Let's have a chat. Sarah Abood, thanks for joining us on My Millennial Money. No worries, Glenn. Now, let's just start with some basics. What is the Financial Advice Association of Australia? Okay, so we're FAAA for short because that's quite a mouthful to say every time. We look after financial advisors and planners in Australia. It's not compulsory to be a member of a professional association, but many are. And something like 60% of the advisors in Australia are members of our association. So we're kind of like the AMA for doctors. We're the professional association. Awesome. I want to kind of, we've got a lot to cover. And one of the reasons I wanted you on here was just to maybe give us an update of where the industry is at, because... A lot of people have seen that the cost of financial advice has just skyrocketed over the last five years. We know it's fact, it's data that there's probably less than half of the licensed financial advisors um, in Australia today than there was five, six, seven years ago. Last year, the government, they commenced a review of financial advice and it was called the Quality of Advice Review. Now, they've responded, and at the time of recording today, which is Tuesday the 14th of November, they've released the first, I guess, tranche of draft legislation, which we can talk about. But based on the QAR, the quality of financial advice, the quality of advice review, can we step back and maybe just paint a timeline? Like, it was only 10 minutes ago in 2018 that the Royal Commission was, you know, executed. Now we've got the quality of advice review. Can you tell us what the QAR is and why it was called for after all the resources were spent uh, on the Royal Commission into financial services and misconduct? Sure. Yeah, there, there has been a lot of change, right? And and the Royal Commission that you're referring to was into some of the ways that large institutions were providing advice and there were a, a number of problems that that Royal Commission uh, uncovered. And as a result of that, a lot of legislation was passed and there was a lot of change in the way that financial advice could be provided to Australians. So essentially, we became the newest profession as a result of that Royal Commission. 
to be an advisor now, you need to have a degree that is a financial advice degree. You need to have passed a specific exam. You need to have done a professional year. You need to do 40 hours a year of continuing professional development. So those are all, if you like, the 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 ways that we distinguish financial advice as being a profession and, and not a job. So we're, we're more like accountants, for example, now. So as a result of that change, yes, the, the couple of things happened. The number of advisors is down about 45%. You're absolutely right on, on where it was at its height in 2019. And the cost of advice has gone up. Now, the, this latest review, the quality of advice review, is, is the government trying to get more high quality advice to more Australian consumers? Because there's a real recognition that people need advice. You know, we, we've created a system that's so incredibly complex. It's really, really difficult to navigate on your own, but advice has become more expensive. So part of what this review is doing is trying to address the ways that the cost of advice has gone up that aren't helping consumers and trying to get rid of some of the unnecessary red tape, unnecessary processes and so on, stuff that's adding to the cost of advice, but it's not helping consumers. So that's a big part of the review. And we've just seen the first tranche of that legislation this morning, as you said. So what changes in the QAR, and I'm just using that for short, everyone, the quality of advice review, the QAR, what are proposed and why do you think those changes are good for consumers. So this this first tranche of legislation is about cutting some of those unnecessary costs. So I'll give you an example. If you engage a financial advisor now and you want to pay for the cost of that advice from a financial product that you might hold, so perhaps a superannuation fund or a managed fund or something of that nature, there could be up to nine times in the first year where you need to sign off on that fee. So Absolutely. You need to know what fees you're paying. You need to know what those fees are for and you need to authorise that. But nine times is completely ridiculous. And that is because legislation has been layered kind of bill upon bill over the last few years, all with good intentions, all aiming to ensure that consumers are absolutely fully informed. But we got to the stage where there was so much paperwork being generated. You know, people are being uh, harassed in their in their caravan holidays to sign paperwork on a particular day, for example, it, it just doesn't help. So this regulation, one of the things it will do is streamline and consolidate all of those requirements so that you just sign off once, you get it disclosed once, and that can authorise every provider that you deal with. That's just one example. There are others. But essentially, this first kind of tranche of register regulation is getting rid of that unnecessary red tape. And we're really hoping that that will help us get the cost of advice down for consumers. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Like everyone who's listening, uh, you may have seen an advisor before and I'm just writing down some things like I would see an advisor, I'd have to sign an authority to proceed to say I want to proceed with this. I might have to sign a service agreement. And now because product manufacturers are so scared, they're also asking for clients to sign documents to say, are you sure that you want to pay your advisor? Like, yeah, it's and just be absolutely wild. If you hold yeah. a range of different financial products, for example, at the moment, you've got to sign a different document in a different way, sometimes on a different date. So it's just making it really unnecessarily difficult. So getting rid of some of that obvious duplication is, is what this first round of legislation is all about. Did the legislation that's uh, been released today, was it much of a deviation from the recommendations in the QAR? So the, the government, so j- just winding back the clock a bit, there was a, a 
well-known lawyer whose name is Michelle Levy, who ran that review for a year and did a really in-depth study into look, why, why is great advice so expensive? What can we do to get the cost down without impacting on the quality of it? The government split those recommendations into three streams. Stream one's about ensuring that we're not just creating process for the sake of process. Stream two is about looking at more ways that we can get advice to consumers and in particular potentially enabling a superannuation fund to give more information, simple advice and support to its members than it can now. And stream three, sorry, is is everything else. So that could be other organisations, other ways to deliver advice, perhaps digitally and so on. So just going back to your question around what you know, was there anything unexpected? One of the changes that we were hoping to see in this first kind of lot and we didn't get was changes to the statement of advice. So everyone, if if you've ever seen an advisor, you'll, you'll be familiar with this incredibly large document. They've gotten bigger over the years. It's not uncommon to see documents over 80 pages in length now that outline the advice that the advisor has given you. And those documents are very repetitive Um, some of the information is just repeating back to you information that you already know and so on. So they've become a bit like software terms and conditions. You know, everyone just says, yeah, yeah, sign, sign. I've already decided that I want to get the advice. But that's not really a great outcome because we want consumers to fully understand the advice they're getting, why they should take it, exactly what it's going to cost. So there are provisions and recommendations that will make those documents a lot shorter and simpler and cleaner and enable them to be more effectively delivered in digital ways that are easier to understand and refer back to as a consumer and share with your partner and in all those sorts of things that we take for granted in other kinds of industry and profession. But it's been quite complicated to to shorten these documents. There's been a lot of consultation going on. So we understand the government is still intending to do this and, and to pass laws that will make them a lot simpler, but it's taking them a bit longer than they expected to get through all of the implications of that particular change. Because when Michelle Levy, I think, put a draft report out or the final report, I, you know, there was comments in there that we could probably do away with the SOA because the advisors are doing all the strategic and the strategy work in the background anyway. And the SOA was just more of a, as you said, a a formal document that had to tick a box. And the amount of hours that it takes to to do these documents, any wonder the price has increased like 50% or more. I reckon even, you'd probably know more than me, but like say five years ago, you could probably get a statement of advice um, some implementation, you know, some holistic advice for a couple for maybe three and a half thousand dollars. I mean, most practices now to open up the folder and pick up the mouse pointer, like it's five to six thousand dollars. So advice has probably doubled because of the red tape. Yeah, well, look, and Glenn, you're, you're aware, I know you've been an advisor yourself, so you're well aware of what, of what goes into putting these documents together. And the statement of advice, there's no doubt that that's a big part of the cost of, of getting good advice to a consumer. Probably the other big element of that is data collection and being it because to give you advice, we've got to know what your situation is. And, and sometimes consumers themselves might not be fully across all of the holdings that they have, all of the entities that they might be involved in. Is there a family trust lying around somewhere? You've, you've got to work all that out before you can advise a consumer. So, so really this is about stripping away the stuff that 
that doesn't help, trying to get more efficiencies into the process um, and getting that cost down to consumers. And look, you're quite right, the, the cost can range between three, three and a half thousand to well over that, depending on the complexity of your situation. You, you mentioned that there was a, re a recommendation that the statement of advice not be required. And, and in fact, it was Michelle Levy's recommendation that it ought to be left to the professional judgment of the advisor. So, you know, when, when you go to see a GP um, and, and you've got a bit of a cold, you don't expect to be sent off for a full body MRI and a CAT scan and mm. full blood work and so on. So basically we're saying our profession needs an equivalent. You know, if your situation is simple, you're 25 years old, you just want to know the best super fund to pick and where it should be invested. That ought to be a fairly simple, quick answer and you shouldn't expect to receive an 80-page document for thousands of dollars to tell you that answer. So that will really help, I think, particularly for younger people setting out on the path of advice. It ought to be simple to start. <laughs> Let's not get all the complexity in at 25. There's plenty of time for that later. Yeah. And I think it's important to note, like for the skeptics out there who might be listening, thinking, hang on a minute, if we're ditching all this stuff, that there are still, you know, consumer protections that would stay. And one example is if they remove the SOA's statement of advice document, there is still an onus for the advisor to ha have details of the strategy and uh, their own due diligence in the background, much like a GP. Yes, absolutely. If there's ever a question later, that the advisor still needs to be in a position to prove that they did the research and they were acting on up-to-date information and that they gave advice in the best interests of their client. The difference would be that they wouldn't have to necessarily give the whole file to the client every time they gave the advice. But the government didn't fully accept that recommendation. Um, what the government has said is they still want there to be some, some document, which by the way, it wouldn't have to be written. It could be a recording of a of a conversation or something of that nature, but but something that the client can rely on to say, okay, this was the advice that I got. I understand what the advice is, why it's being given to me, what it's going to cost me, and what I need to do next if I want to go ahead. But it will be a lot simpler than than the current requirements. Yeah, absolutely. So just moving on, I guess on this whole consumer protections and giving consumers confidence. During the debate, they had, you know, there was talks about we need to move to a good advice duty because consumers deserve to have at least good advice, right? And sidebar, just to entertain uh, you, Sarah, I had a tap on the shoulder once from ASIC about some YouTube stuff that I was doing and I had my license and, and all that stuff. And the regulator grilled me and they're like, do you think this was general advice or personal advice? And they said to me, not that it was bad advice. So oh, gosh. <laughs> it's this okay. disconnect that, you know, the regulator told me that you gave good advice, good general advice, uh, but it's just that if it doesn't tick this black and white box, it gets thrown out. So It's reassuring to hear they're on the ball, Glenn. That's great. Absolutely. We love our friends at ASIC. So <laughs> what is a potential good advice duty? So at, at the moment, if you go to see a registered licensed financial advisor, the advice that you'll receive must be advice that's in your best interests. So that's a higher duty and a higher test, if you like, than a good advice duty. So in your best interests means that only your interests are being considered, not the interests of the advisor 
or any of the financial products that are being recommended and that given everything that that you've disclosed and that the advisor knows about you, this is the best advice for you. So that's a professional duty. That's actually in legislation. Advisors have a legislated code which includes a best interest duty and it is against the law for an advisor to give you advice that is not in your best interest. And I think that's really important for people to understand. That's the critical protection that you have when you engage a licensed financial advisor. The talk about a good advice duty is in the context of, well, if we need to get more advice to consumers and there just aren't enough advisors right now to give that advice, then how can we expand the 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 sorts of people and organisations that can give advice to consumers, but these people haven't been through a four-year university degree in professional year, they haven't passed the exam and so on. So the, the good advice duty was proposed as a way of allowing a lower but still good test for advice. So the good advice test would say that the advice may not be the best possible advice for you, but it's still good in the sense that it will still leave you better off if you take it. It just might not have been the best possible advice that you could have been given at the time. And the assumption is that good advice would be cheaper to provide than the best advice and could more easily be provided, for example, via digital channels. Now, that th this is a difficult conversation right now in the profession because, you know, I represent financial advisors and, and we think that the best interest duty is the best outcome for consumers. It's also true that there just aren't enough advisors right now. So the way we're thinking about this is it may be a way that new advisors could come into the profession and perhaps start engaging with consumers earlier on, perhaps while they're studying to be an advisor and, and give simple advice to people that's still going to put them on the right track. It's still going to leave them better off and, and not, if you like, blow yourself up. And then if you're able to get that advice and it's not as expensive as normal advice, well, maybe that's better than nothing, which is what most, most consumers are getting right now. And then as you progress, as your assets increase and, and potentially the complexity of your situation increases, you know, that advisor that you've started out dealing with is now fully qualified and is in a position to offer you that, that advice in your best interests. It is quite hard to explain because there's so much of the debate is about really arcane sections of the Corporations Act and how it interacts with the legislated best interest duty, how that interacts with the ASIC regulatory guidance and so on. Most consumers would just roll their eyes and say, how can you make it so hard? But, but all of this is, it's been very well intentioned. You know, that the idea is we, we want to help more consumers. We want to make sure that they're getting, you know, at least good advice if not everyone can get the best advice and what could we do in the meantime? But look, that's that's a very live debate right now. I mentioned earlier the Stream 2 reform. So the government is proposing that super funds might be able to provide this kind of advice to consumers, which at the moment they can't. I personally, this is my own personal view from being out there in, you know, consumer land, but also on the other side of the desk, you know, a few years ago now. I don't love the word best, because it means that you've 100% said this is the best and we put our house on it. That is such a high bar. Now, I, I talk to a lot of junior financial advisors and I often say to them, when you're talking with clients, even in emails or casually, drop the word best and replace it with the most appropriate because that's what we want. We want appropriate advice that is also good. 
I can't give you or guarantee anyone that I'll give you the best podcast ever, but I'll give you a good podcast. And I just think, you know, the word best, I mean, it's such a high bar and you can just see why the the cost of advice just keeps going through the roof with all this red tape. Like, let's just, as you said, let's just get advice moving. Let's, I would rather have someone who's young in their early 20s get some good financial advice, get on the right track than not engage with an advisor because they have to prove heaven and earth. Yeah, look, I, I agree. It, it is a very high bar. Um, it, it's also the bar that all professions have in the sense that they're required to prioritise the interests of their client over their own interests. It, it is it is difficult, but we also, as a profession, pride ourselves on doing that. Opinions will sometimes differ. But, I mean, one example of how it might differ from a super fund perspective is if a client comes to see a financial advisor and says, well, you know, we've worked out that we've got 5000 a year that we can do something with. What's the best use of that 5000 So it's an advisor that's going to sit there, do the calculations and say, you know what, the way interest rates are right now for you and given your personal tax rate and what your goals are, it's probably going to be best for you to pay that off your mortgage. And then once you've got your mortgage down to zero, what we're going to need to do is we're going to need to increase your super fund salary sacrifice contributions and so on. But the other thing the advisor might know is they might have a bit of a look at your uh, offset account and notice that you've had got a history of redrawing against your mortgage <laughs> every year. You know, perhaps you've used your house as a bit of a, a holiday funding mechanism or something. So they might observe your behaviour and say, well, yeah, I mean, it's going to be better short term for you to pay that off your mortgage. But if I know you're just going to redraw it again in a year and, and burn it on another holiday to Bali or whatever, maybe the best advice for you is to put it in super because you can't access it again until you're 60 and you know it's going to be there. But an advisor will always have that conversation with you and uncover why they're making a particular recommendation. That's not a conversation you can have with your super fund right now because your super fund doesn't know you've got a mortgage. They may not even know your salary, which a lot of people are surprised about. So, can I ask you a spicy question about super funds? You can, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ask right. away. <laughs> well, I'll do so right after this break. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Okay, we're back. Now, before the break, you gave me permission to ask you a spicy question. So the government seemed to want to ensure that super funds can provide more financial advice in the future, right? We all know that they've said that. Someone might have a, a super fund with XYZ super. They've contributed all their life. It's all good. They're getting to retirement. They go to a super fund to get advice. Now, you can see potentially why this good advice thing is happening more than best interest on a big tin foil hat scale. If I go to Honda and I want a new car, I'm only getting a Honda. If I go to my super fund that I've used for years and want financial advice, there's, I'd also, or or almost say, there's no way on the planet that advisor in that super fund would want to recommend that the client goes to another super fund because it's, a cheaper admin fee or a cheaper investment fee. So I don't know what I'm saying there. I'm just saying, <laughs> is it like the consumers really need to be cautious when going to a super fund for advice or is it more this greater good? The more people getting advice, the better. If they stay with the super fund they've used for the last five years, most super funds are pretty reasonable in terms of fees and returns now. Hey, it's good advice on your way. Yeah, look, it's relatively straightforward now. I think it will get trickier. If, if advisors, if um, super funds can provide more advice without advisors. As you say, a number of super funds do already employ advisors. So that those yeah. advisors can give you this, the, the advice you, you would receive anywhere else. The difference is often what you pay for. So mm. if, if you're really seeking very straightforward information, what's currently called general advice from your fund, so you might ring them up and say, what option am I invested in? Is that really appropriate for me? Um, should I make salary sacrifice contributions? I mean, th- those sorts of things would generally be considered to be quite simple. And you can get answers to those questions now. There's a test known as the sole purpose test, which means that you, you can't pay for advice like that out of your super fund unless it relates to your interest in the fund specifically. So it's, it, it gets more complicated if you're seeking advice that's more broad than your super fund. And you can't pay for advice, for example, about debt, cash flow management and so on out of your super fund. But you still might be able to get it from a super fund advisor and you just pay a separate fee. So this is where I can hear myself saying all this and imagining some poor consumer going, oh, my God, this is so complicated. Um, but, but really, it's fairly straightforward. If you're in accumulation phase, you just want to make sure that you're not missing anything obvious. You want to make sure that your assets are pretty much invested in an appropriate way for you. I I definitely think it's better to get some advice than no advice in that situation. Where it gets complicated is where you're coming up to retirement and you you want to make decisions about, okay, maybe I'm 55 now, I'm planning to retire in the next five years, Um, should I start up an allocated pension? Sorry, that's Siri eavesdropping on our conversation. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I should I start up an annuity or perhaps an allocated pension? What should I do about my estate planning and so on? That sort of advice is very difficult to get from a super fund, I think. And it's not just because that super fund is, is probably going to have a bias towards recommending you use their retirement income products. As you say, there's an element of, well, I've walked into a Toyota dealership. I probably expect to get recommended a Toyota. 
Mm. Financial products and, and the financial system are far more complex than the buying decision for a car. And if you make the wrong decisions when you're coming up to retirement, you could potentially cost yourself a lot of money and store up a lot of trouble for later that's very hard to undo later on. So mm. I think that's where the rubber hits the road when, when people are thinking about retirement. That's where I think proper comprehensive advice becomes incredibly important, absolutely worth paying for. There's no question about that. Um, and, and probably harder to give from a particular fund where it's collectively charged. So just on this super analogy, and I might be a bit rusty, but at the moment or even in the future, is there talk that I can go to my super fund, get financial advice on my current super, even general advice like, yeah, you could look at moving to growth or uh, keep it conservative. But there's got to be some type of onus. Like if I go to XYZ big super fund to get financial advice on my super product, I probably need to be very clear that they're not going to recommend that I take the money and move it to another rat platform. No, you, you, and, you would not expect to get that kind of advice. Yeah. You're right. And the reason I'm kind of harping on this, and it might be um, a bit of post-traumatic stress of, you know, over the years <laughs> of advice land and, you know, yeah. dealing with all this stuff. Been through the fire. Yeah, like there was issues years ago where someone went to A&P and they got recommended an A&P product, but you go down to XYZ Superfund and they just recommend that product and it was all right. Like, I just think it's so wild and you know, that's why I said my tinfoil hat that if we have the good advice duty, my XYZ super fund can still recommend their fund, even if it isn't the most cost effective, because it's still good advice. Yeah. And uh, yes, you're right. And and I think the government in, in these recommendations is, is implicitly recognising that there are sometimes some advantages to vertical integration. The disadvantage is exactly what you've said, that the client may end up in or remain in a product that's not the best possible product that they could have. It would still need to be a good product. And and I think that that's, you know, the government is implicitly saying that they believe that that's an acceptable trade-off. What, mm. what we're sorting out is what are the legislative boundaries that we're going to put around that. So for the FAAA, you know, we're we, we are not in principle against that. We're open to it. And mm. the, the position that we've taken is that there need to be some guardrails to ensure that the advice that consumers are getting in these circumstances is at least good. <laughs> and, and you don't, as I said, make a catastrophic decision that blows you up because your super fund didn't know something really critical about you. It, it is tough to do. So, for example, the um, the recommendations change the definition of general advice as well. So, a lot of the information you can get from your fund now is called general advice. Some of that will be reframed as personal advice because the recommendation is that if the super fund knows something about you, needs to take that information about you into account when it's giving you the answers to the questions that you're calling through. And, and I think the, the challenge there is a consumer, the example I gave earlier is as a consumer, you might assume that your super fund knows what your salary is, but pretty often they don't. They mm -hmm. know what your contribution is, but they might not know whether your super, whether your salary package is inclusive or whether super is on top of that package you might be sending contributions to two funds. Like there could be all sorts of things that that super fund doesn't know about you. And um, that could mean that the advice that they give you isn't the best possible advice that you could get. What we're trying to do right now is ensure that it's not bad. 
put it that way. Mm. And I think the more I think about this, and I'm a pragmatist to a fault and a lot of, um, you know, I might cop a bit of heat for the comments I'm about to make, but like when we look back at public health and the pandemic, like on balance, vaccinate the society, herd immunity sped up through vaccinations. Sure, there are individual cases where there are some side effects that are pretty savage, but on balance as a society, we've lost less lives on balance. And I think with this good advice duty, on balance as a society, we've had more people getting financial advice. And the only solace that I think is here now that wasn't there five, six, seven, ten years ago is a lot of the investment options of products, they're actually very competitive. So if someone went to their XYZ super fund to get advice and they remained with that super fund, there's not a, a balanced option that's 2% a year in fees with hidden commission like the, like there was 20 years ago. So it is actually a better framework for this herd immunity financial advice. I don't expect you to comment on any of those <laughs> wild statements, but <laughs> I'm just I, I, working I, through this right I, now. I think I, I think I see where you're going. And, and look, you're quite right that there have been a, a number of other changes that have been made to the financial system. You know, the government wants people to have confidence to, to invest in the financial system, to seek advice and, and to know that if things go wrong, that there's some recourse there because that means everybody's better off. You know, ultimately, mm-hmm. if every Australian is financially self-sufficient, that's good for the country and that's what the government is thinking about. They, they want people to be making the right decisions really consistently and they want people to be better off. So we're very aligned in that and how we do it and we've got a huge population of people, you know, literally millions of people, for example, hitting retirement in the next, you know, already in retirement or coming into retirement in the next few years and they're going to live a long time, right? And we're all going to get there. We're either going to die or we're going to get there. So all, all of society has a strong interest in making sure we can retire with confidence and and that our our elder generations have confidence to spend, confidence to invest and, and to help other generations. That's just a super healthy society and that is absolutely the goal of all of these reforms. In our finishing time, can I ask you some quick questions that people have asked me in the Facebook group for My Millennial Money? Sure. Okay. The first one is, apologies if this is throwing you under a bus, do you have a financial advisor yourself yes. as the CEO of the FAAA? <laughs> yes, I do. Um, absolutely, I do. Uh, I was really lucky in my very first job. When I first left Tassie and moved to Sydney, I got a job with AMP at the time um, and that was my first job. I went through uni spent nine years nearly at that organisation, met my husband, wasn't a, it wasn't a bad school. Um, but yes, got to meet a financial advisors as well and got a lot of good advice early on that really helped set me on the right path. Told me that it was probably a mistake to be buying my groceries on my credit card, probably should be spending a little bit less going out on the weekend, got me started on a savings plan. And I guess that really gave me a taste for it. And I was absolutely fascinated by how much difference you could make just by making some small good decisions at a young age, how quickly it builds up over time. You know, I know it's been said before, the magic of compound interest, but that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about getting people involved and thinking about these things young. Now you, if you start saving at 21, you can you could stop at 30 <laughs> and you would still be much better off than someone who starts at 
saving at 30 and never stops. You know, you, you sit there and do the numbers and go, oh, damn it, why can't I go back to being 21 again and start putting more money away? But yes, yeah, so I've had an advisor ever since and I, I really value that relationship. It's an annual check-in. So much in your life changes every year that I really value that. I well and truly believe it's worth the cost because that advisor is not just giving me good advice on what I should do. They're holding me to account to implement it. And they also look back in the year that was and say, oh, yeah, so we said we were going to do this. Now, what happened there? Mm. (laughs) And knowing that I'm accountable really helps me stay on the straight and narrow. And you've touched on a really important point that some of the community still aren't aware of. Like a financial advisor isn't, let's get Sarah and her family the best return each year. Like it's more than this, I'm a stock picker, I'll get you the best use of your money. I'll invest, you know, to maximize your return every single minute of every single day and call you. And like, it is about that lifestyle thing, like the cash flow, the accountability. It's really about your goals as well. And, and to yeah. your point about stock picking, you know, it's increasingly important, particularly for young people, is the way that their money is invested is really important to them. You know, they, they might want to know, for example, that their money is not invested in weapons of mass destruction or hmm. new, co- new coal power plants and so on, you know, that, and there's no value judgment there, but just to make a, the point that if you do have those values and they are important to you, an advisor can help you invest your funds in ways that align with your values. And your values might not always be to maximise return. There might be other yeah. things that are important to you. And and certainly at the other end of the scale, you know, there are people whose goal is is to actually give away their money. And yes. that's a big part of advice is is for people getting advice on philanthropy, you know, saying this is something that's really important to me, what's the best way for me to help this particular cause. So while making you be better off is is certainly the bedrock of advice, there are a lot everyone's definition of being better off is going to be different and an advisor is going to help you get there based on what you think that means. Well, accountability and habits with your personal cash flow allowing you to save more will often do better than a half percent return from a better portfolio. And certainly the younger you are, the Mm. more important what you contribute is. You know, investment returns become a more important component of your own overall return later in life. But when you're young, it's all about how much you're putting in. Absolutely. Two more quick questions. The first one, where are we at? And I know it's been an old chestnut for a million years in our industry, Tax deductibility for financial advice. I can pay an ongoing fee and claim that on tax, but I can't claim upfront. Yes. Yeah, so we have been working with the tax office actually for almost three years on that. Now, we've got two prongs to this. We continue to make the argument with government that financial advice ought to be tax deductible because it is essentially by its very nature going towards increasing your, your income over time. But at the moment, there's a tax determination that was um, last reviewed, I think, in 1990, something like that. It's pretty long in the tooth, that one. And the, the tax office are reviewing it. So there was a private consultation on that tax determination that closed earlier this year. And the tax office are planning to take that consultation public sometime during this month. So what that will do is not change the law, but it will update the way the law is applied because a lot has changed in the last 30 years. So did the FAAA 
decide or did the industry decide that it was easier to go through the ATO's interpretation as opposed to getting, say, the Minister Stephen Jones to put pressure downwards? Oh, look, we're we're doing both. So we've always advocated directly with government and will continue to do so. But the decision we took a little over three years ago now was to work with um, Deloitte and a consultancy called Tangelo to work directly with the tax office. So, yeah, both is the short answer. A little bonus question before my final question. (laughs) Do you think, you know, the Minister and Stephen Jones and I think all key stakeholders, even Treasury and um, Assistant Ministers, like they actually get it and they want this because, I don't know, you just just hope that the people that are actually in the, these positions to make changes, and I know they did do the QAR, like they actually are interested in making this better. Yeah, look, I I don't have any doubt of that. We've had a great deal of contact with the minister and his office, with the regulators, with Treasury as well, Um, and there's a genuine desire to resolve it and there's a genuine understanding that Australians are suffering because they're not able to access advice that they need to maximise their own financial position. So that there's no question amongst any of those groups that financial advice is a good thing and that Australians should get it. The, the focus is very much on how do we get more of it to more Australians and not impact, not reduce the quality because there's a, a real recognition that professionalisation over the last four years has had a really great impact on the quality of the advice that consumers are receiving and also consumers' confidence in that advice. But, yeah, there, there's less than 15, what are we up to now, 15,000 700 odd advisors in the country. So there's not a lot to go around. And and one of our big goals is to get more advisors into the profession. Such a great profession. It's helping people be better off. And, Mm. And I think for a lot of people, because it's a new profession, they're not as aware that this is a career option. So we're focusing a lot with universities and, and with high schools and so on, just talking about what it is that we do, why it's important. There's so much demand for people's services and we'd love to help get more people in. Yeah, and that was kind of my last question in terms of someone listening who wants to change careers, who wants to be a new entrant into the financial advice industry. Like, What do you think the first port of call is? Like, Can they join as a student member and, and start to go to chapter events and maybe just speak in our closing minutes, you know, what the FAAA looks like as a member or if you want to join the industry and how the FAAA can help? Yeah, look, absolutely. I'd say give us a call, 1300 337 and we'd love to help you. Student membership is free. It's important for people to be aware that there are a set of very specific degrees that you need to do if you want to be a financial advisor. And we have up-to-date information about which of those universities, which of the courses, we can chat to students about what the best option might be for them. Because student membership is free and so many advisors are so keen to engage with students because they want to grow their businesses, you know, they, they want to form those relationships early. We run mm-hmm. functions and, and a whole lot of um, events that are designed to help connect 
students with the profession and and with people who are already in the practice. And that's really important for a lot of students because it can be a bit of a, if you don't happen to know a financial advisor already or, or be employed in a practice, you know, a lot of what we can do is help connect students with, with the profession and give you the right contacts that will help you not just get through your degree, but, but help you find the right employment and get your, your career and your profession off to a great start. Couldn't agree more. And for those who are interested, like join as a student and, you know, there's a Newcastle chapter here that meet and go to these meetings. I can honestly say for me, being an advisor, leaning, leaning into the association, I've met the best people and I've got friends, you know, from years and years ago at, and what it does for your career, it doesn't have you in a silo. It has you mixing with other professionals and you can really learn. I would honestly say anyone who wants to get this, get in this industry, make sure the advisor and the practice that you're working with and under are actually connected into an association because that's where the finger on the pulse is. They're not stuck behind like, oh, yeah, no, I know it all. I don't need to connect. Like be involved, be active and honestly go to the conferences, go to all these events because me as a practicing advisor, I was making more money than a lot of my other peers and working less because I was plugged in. I was, and I helped so many people. Let's not forget that. That's like the hygiene factor. But in terms of your own professional development, lean into this stuff because I can honestly say it really helped my career. And that was a bit of a non-relevant rant, but I just want to talk to my listeners, Sarah, while, <laughs> oh, no, while we're no, on the topic. I couldn't agree with you more, you know, particularly when you're starting out, it's so important to connect with people in the profession and know that there's people there who who really want to help you, like they genuinely want to help. And, and we have such a thriving community as advisors. Advisors don't really see each other as competition. There's, there's so much excess demand for what we do. You know, and, and advisors are, as you say, they're really great at helping each other and just solving problems. There's all these, there's Google groups that, you know, there's FAAA community, there's functions where you just go and have a beer down the pub mm. and share a pizza and, and have a yarn about what's going on. And, and that, that is so important to everybody to know that that network and that community is there for you. And I would say like if you're a bit older and you've halfway through your career, whatever that looks like, join the FAAA, go to these meetings. It's just like, hey, I want to become an advisor one day. Guarantee you go to a couple of those meetings, get to know people, you'll get a job in an office. Absolutely. And, and look, career changes are a, big, are a big feature, as you probably know, Glenn, of financial advisors. There's quite a few that have been, you know, teachers or nurses or mm. economists or actuaries, and, and they come across the profession and say, hey, that looks really cool. That's actually a better way of applying you know, the technical knowledge that I really love helping people. And this is a profession that's all about helping people. Absolutely. Now, when you woke up this morning, you know, Tuesday, the 14th of November, you're like, I'm talking on my millennial money today. I'm going to talk about this because I'm so excited. Any final things that you want to maybe say on behalf of um, the FAAA to existing clients of financial advisors or potential clients or the broader consumer vibe of my audience? Yeah, look, I think the it really is simple at the end of the day that financial advice is going to help you be better off. And and while the definitions of that will change and the legislation will change and there's a whole lot of complexity behind that, that's the bedrock. That's the base of, of a really important relationship. And if you haven't already got an advisor, there's a couple of easy ways that you can find one. You can jump onto our website and just type in 
your postcode, for example, and you'll get a list of advisors who are not only properly qualified and licensed, but also members of a professional association. Go and chat to a few. You know, you, you don't have to go with the first advisor you come across. It's really important that you feel engaged and confident and that this is a person you can see yourself telling your life story to, telling your hopes and dreams to, and that you think mm. they're going to help you get there because it is a very personal relationship. It's incredibly productive and incredibly important, but you've got to feel really comfortable with that person. So I think that that's the most important thing. Get an advisor. You really are going to be better off. Make sure that advisor is someone that you can trust and that you have confidence in and that you feel, you know, you've got the vibe with. Mm. One of our advisors, because we also refer people to advisors and all of the advisors are actually members of the association. And one of those advisors that I refer people to is Martin McGrath and he's up for uh, advisor of the year oh, um, is at he? the conference oh, next week. We'll find out next so. next Tuesday night, I think it is. It's yes. the big gala dinner. Oh, yeah, all the so, best. Um, yeah, maybe uh, I'll slip you $50 over this <laughs> Zoom table. and <laughs> uh, Sarah Abood from the Financial Advice Association of Australia, thank you so much for joining us and we'll have to have you back maybe every six or nine months for an update because I feel guilty for not actually having these type of conversations with a money podcast because you know this is what we're about. No, oh, it's been great, Glenn. Thanks a lot. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.